Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How do you say whataboutism in Russian? The lead starts right now. Glimmers of hope that moves right out of the old Putin playbook as President Biden sits down for the first meeting with the longtime Russian leader. What this could mean for frosty U.S.-Russia relations in the Biden years. And a new warning on the dangerous Delta variant, especially to those still hesitant to get the COVID vaccine as it begins to take hold in the U.S. Plus, ceasefire and jeopardy. Israel bombs Gaza days after a new government takes shape. How balloons led to this latest flare-up of violence. Welcome to Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with our world lead in that historic high-stakes summit between President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin. The summit lasted roughly three hours, with both leaders describing it as constructive and positive. They said there were no threats or ultimatums, and Putin called Biden balanced, professional and experienced. I did what I came to do. The tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was, 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 was good, positive. There wasn't any, any uh, strident action taken. Well, we disagreed, I disagreed, stated where it was. Where he disagreed, he stated. But it was not done in a hyperbolic atmosphere. The meeting, you know, was actually very efficient. It was substantive. It was specific. And it was aimed at achieving results. One of those results, ambassadors from the U.S. and Russia will return to their diplomatic posts. But when it came to controversial issues like cybersecurity, human rights and Ukraine, Putin remained defensive. CNN's Caitlin Collins reports from the site of the summit in Geneva. President Biden summing up his first summit with President Putin. I did what I came to do. The two leaders met behind closed doors for under three hours in Geneva and cited progress on their way out. The talks were quite constructive. The tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was, 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 was good, positive. But it was clear that divisions on critical issues like cyber attacks and human rights remained. The bottom line is, I told President Putin, that we need to have some basic rules of the road that we can all abide by. Putin summed up the summit first, praising Biden while denying any role in recent ransomware attacks and brushing off concerns about jailing his political opponents. They've said that most of the cyber attacks in the world are carried out from the cyber realm of the United States. Biden said he pressed Putin on multiple fronts and would continue to do so. I also told him that no president of the United States could keep faith with the American people if they did not speak out to defend our democratic values, 
to stand up for the universal and fundamental freedoms that all men and women have, in our view. That's just part of the DNA of our country. Biden expressing confidence that Putin would not continue to ratchet up tensions with the U.S. The last thing he wants now is a Cold War. The two agreed to send their respective ambassadors back to their countries and attempt to establish guardrails on cyber attacks. I talked about the proposition that certain critical infrastructure should be off limits to attack, period, by cyber or any other means. At times, Biden rebuked his Russian counterpart after he equated jailing political opponents with arresting rioters who stormed the Capitol. As for who is killing whom or throwing whom in jail, people came to the U.S. Congress with political demands. 400 people. <laughs> My response is kind of what I communicated, but I think that's a, uh, that's a ridiculous comparison. Biden saying they will know in three to six months if there can be productive dialogue, but growing visibly angry when asked if the summit would lead to real change from the aggressive Russian leader. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he'll change his behavior. What do you do all the time? So when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six I months said, what I said was, let's get it straight. I said what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. I'm just stating the fact. The president later apologizing for his response. I owe my last question an apology. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been such a wise guy with the last answer I gave. Now, Pam, back to what was actually discussed behind closed doors at this summit when it came to those cyber attacks. President Biden told us that there were no threats made as they were meeting, but he said the U.S. is fully capable of responding with its own cyber attacks. And he said he believes the Russian president knows that. All right, Caitlin, stay with us. Let's bring in CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward, CNN Senior Political Correspondent Abby Phillip, and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine William Taylor. Clarissa, let's start with you. Both Biden and Putin talked about the meeting positively, but we just heard Biden reveal to Caitlin he's not confident Putin will change his behavior. What was your takeaway? Uh, I think none of us should expect President Vladimir Putin to change his behavior. He has modeled himself now as an adversary to the West, and I don't think that's going to change. Uh, the metric of expectation that we were given by people who watched them follow uh, the Kremlin closely ahead of this summit was that they were hoping for a relationship that was hostile but respectful. Okay, so no one's talking about adjusting fundamental behaviors. What they both seem to be singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak, about is this idea of injecting an element of predictability into the relationship with the hopes that a further degradation of relations can be prevented. And given some of the areas that they outlined, they're talking about Syria, humanitarian corridor, Iran, nuclear negotiations, Afghanistan, a potential prisoner swap dialogue, cybersecurity dialogue. It does appear that possibly, if both sides are committed to it, there could be room for an improvement in the relationship. But I don't think either side is expecting anyone to dramatically change their behavior. This is about averting a further deterioration. And as President Biden said, we won't know more until the next six months or so, right? Ambassador, uh, we won't know what will actually come from this meeting until we see how these working groups um, 
meet together, what comes out of that. Biden said that he raised human rights issues, of course, like the imprisonment of the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. But when Putin was asked about this at the press conference, in typical fashion, he turned it right back onto the U.S. Let's listen. Look at the streets of America. Every single day there are shootings and killings. You, you don't have time to open your mouth and you're shot dead after the um, murder of or the killing of uh, uh, the African-American and Black Lives Matter ensued. We sympathize with the Americans, but we do not wish that this kind of thing should happen on our territory. President Biden called this a ridiculous comparison. But what do you make of this moment? I think President Biden was exactly right. That's a ridiculous comparison. Um, but what you said earlier, I think, is important, Pamela, and that is there will be there'll be a way to measure if there's anything good coming out of this. They, they were remarkably specific. I didn't think President Putin was particularly specific, but I thought President Biden was very specific, surprisingly so on listing the number of things that he had raised with President Putin. Very specific, like 16 uh, specific parts of the infrastructure in the United mm -hmm. States that are, should be off limits. Including energy and water. Yeah. Energy and water. Uh, uh, talking about election interference. Uh, uh, someone mentioned the humanitarian corridors. They also mentioned Ukraine of some interest to me. And so I, I'm very glad to hear them talking about uh, the possibility of the United States playing a bigger role there in Ukraine. So I, I was impressed with at least President Biden's specific list of, of actions. And are you actually hopeful that anything will come out of it? Hopeful is too strong. Um, uh, I, I think there, there's, there's a lot to be skeptical about when you're dealing with the Russians. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if, if in six months we see a, a group of people sitting down talking about strategic stability, talking about nuclear weapons, talking about the new technologies that President Biden talked about. And he said they got fairly specific about rapid response times. They're talking about very fast weapons. That uh, So apparently they got pretty specific. If those translate into some real talks that get to real discussions and negotiations on a new START treaty, that they got five years, that goes pretty quickly. Uh, but that, that would be a good sign. And as you mentioned, one of the topics, Abby, was election interference. President Biden said he brought that up. He told Putin that if he if it happens again, there will be action. The bottom line is, as we know, there already has been action from the U.S. on that front, and it hasn't deterred Russian behavior. Is that enough? Yeah, I mean, I think that Biden knows that it's not enough. <laughs> he He's pretty, tra I think, transparent that this was a warning that he knows is probably going to fall on deaf ears to some extent, but it's one that he felt needed to be said both as a, a form of contrast with the prior administration, but also, as he said, not just in the context of election interference, but also on human rights, as a statement of American values uh, about what he expects out of Russia. I don't think the White House believes that Putin's going to suddenly throw up his hands and say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. But the idea that an American president would allow it to go forward without challenging it, and in the case of former President Trump, uh, taking Putin's version of events is something that I think the Biden administration felt that they could not let that stand. And Caitlin, the White House wanted to keep expectations low. Biden repeatedly said his goal was stability and predictability from Russia. Does it appear to you that Biden got that? 
I, I do think that they tried to keep the expectations low because they knew going into this that they weren't going to walk out of it with a 180 in Putin's behavior. But I think that's why the question is what happens down the road, because he has not changed his behavior down the road before. We've seen this even when it comes to the solar winds hack, which was responded to with U.S. sanctions and uh, everything that followed there. And yet we know that that uh, behavior from Russia continued. It's not just in addition to the ransomware attacks that the White House has said is being done by criminal groups that are based in Russia. And Russia is harboring those, of course. They would be able to stop them if President Putin wanted to. That is the thinking even inside the White House. And so I think the ultimate question about whether or not they change their behavior really remains to be seen. And if they modify it in a way because they know that it is a different president in the White House who does take a different approach than what we saw from his predecessor. Putin had been dealing with someone very different for the last four years, but still there were sanctions that happened under that. And President Biden has said they'll continue to do that if they feel it's necessary. The question is if those sanctions actually deter Russian aggression and that behavior. One thing that is really notable that came out of this that could have been really bad, I think, if it didn't, uh, was the fact that these ambassadors are going to go back to their post. The respective ambassadors to U.S. and to Russia have been back in their home countries, Pam, for the last several months after tensions got really high between the U.S. and Russia in April. And they were going to go back, they said. They never did before this summit actually happened. Now Putin said, and the White House confirmed, they are going to be returning to their countries. Certainly some progress on that front. Uh, Clarissa, this morning Biden made reference to the U.S. and Russia as two great powers. This type of language obviously elevates Moscow's status. Do you think that was intentional on Biden's part to say what Putin wanted to hear and set a more positive tone heading into the day? I think I think President Biden made several conciliatory gestures uh, to President Putin ahead of this conference. Uh, one of them was referring to him as a worthy adversary. He called him bright, uh, I believe. And so he also said in a press conference that he gave after uh, the NATO summit in Brussels, he talked about the idea that, you know, Ukraine was not on track yet to join NATO, that that is not something that's going to happen imminently. That will be very important for the Russians to have heard. And back in May, uh, the Biden administration actually waived sanctions on this Nord Stream pipeline between Russia and Germany. That's been the source of a lot of concern from many people in the administration. But this was seen not just as a sort of concession to Germany, but also as a way of trying to diffuse the situation slightly with the Russians and perhaps make it clear that the agenda is not one of hostility. And we heard that again from President Biden today. He said, quote, my agenda is not against Russia. It's for America. It's not against Russia. That is an important distinction. But I don't think, Pam, that he was successful in persuading President Putin of that. Because if you listen to Putin's press conference, he said again and again, the U.S. sees Russia as an enemy and the goal is not to strengthen Russia, but to contain it. This has always been very much uh, the Russian mindset, particularly, uh, of course, in the last 10 years or so. And I, I don't think that's changed. But I do think that with small gestures and words, there was an attempt to pave the way for a more positive conversation from the Biden administration. Mr. Ambassador, do you agree? I agree, although uh, I would say that several of those steps were not taken. For, for example, the Nord Stream uh, waiver, the waiver that allows Nord Stream apparently to go forward. Um, I don't think that was a concession to the Russians. I think that was an attempt to shore up an, an ally. Uh, in my own view, it was a mistake. 
Um, I, think, uh, I think they should have uh, continued the sanctions on Nord Stream. Um, but I can understand them wanting to have a better relationship with the Germans. And that, that, I think, was the motivation. That said, I don't think there was an intent to be uh, uh, hostile uh, to the Russians um, or to President Putin. I think there was, it was cordial, it was businesslike, mm-hmm. and that was, a, that was a good thing. Abby, you had mentioned the comparison with the Helsinki summit. Um, how much do you think that this summit was about setting a new tone yeah. um, with President Putin and just laying out, because you heard President Biden talk about you know, telling Putin about the morals and the values of this country, the founding of this country. How much of this do you think was about setting that new tone? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was. But, you know, the tone is was maybe, you know, 30 percent of the the picture here. I think the rest of it really was just trying to uh, hammer out some very discreet details that they wanted to get some kind of, uh, you know, agreement to move forward on so that they could say coming out of this that this wasn't just about the optics and smoke and mirrors. Uh, You got the sense from Putin in his press conference that he believed that this was more or less all business. And for Joe Biden, that's a big deal. As you know, Pam, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is a people person. He likes to kind of uh, you know, do the small talk thing. But this was a, a pretty business-like environment. It was efficient. It went fairly quickly for these types of meetings. And it's because the United States wanted to have uh, certain things, those 16 targets that they wanted to take off the table. That was very explicit, very deliberate and and concrete, something to come out of all of this, not just the idea that if there's a tonal change. That part was pretty obvious uh, and and I think in some cases from the Putin side, maybe even a little bit welcome. He feels mm-hmm. like he understands Biden, how he operates. And Biden is a, a pretty seasoned actor on the world stage. You know, you pick apart every little thing, right? Yeah. Because words are, are chosen so carefully and it's all choreographed. But just the fact that Putin brought up Biden's mom and then Biden made reference to that again. <laughs> you know, it's just and, and Biden called it colloquial. Um, all right. Thank you all so much. Well, much more on the summit, including President Biden's warning to Putin about the future of top Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. That's next. There was one name clearly on President Biden's mind walking into his meeting with President Putin. Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader and anti-corruption activist who is currently being held in a Russian jail. Once again today, Putin refused to even say his name altogether. This man knew that he was uh, breaking the law of Russia. He is somebody who has been twice convicted, and he consciously ignored the requirements of the law. Let's go back to CNN's Clarissa Ward in Geneva. So, Clarissa, you have been covering the Navalny story for months. What did you make of Putin's answer? I thought it was very interesting. I think it's the first time that we've ever heard Putin try to say explicitly that Navalny deliberately broke the law by coming back to Russia, that he somehow had consciously done that, that it was an act of of provocation. Uh, Let's be clear, 
Navalny understood the risks of going back to Russia. I even pushed him on that issue when I interviewed him back in December. He understood that it was possible that he was going to be arrested, but it certainly wasn't his objective or his goal. Uh, and he was, rightly or wrongly, actually optimistic that perhaps there would be some way to avoid that happening. I think more broadly speaking, if we're talking about the tone that we heard from President Putin today uh, with regards to Alexei Navalny, um, I don't think it will have been much comfort to any of Navalny's supporters. Clearly, President Putin is sticking to his guns. He went so far as comparing the opposition leader to the rioters uh, who staged the insurrection on January 6th. Uh, in the U.S. Capitol, which, of course, is preposterous on many levels and a false equivalent. Um, Navalny hasn't engaged in any illegal activity uh, or any obviously illegal activity beyond what Russian courts might find. Um, and so it's, it's unclear to me, certainly, nor is he engaged in any violent activity. But there you heard it from President Putin with classic uh, whataboutism, uh, mm -hmm. essentially telling President Biden to back off on this topic because the, as he calls them, unauthorized opposition in your country are as bad, if not worse, as mine, and we don't want to have the same problem as you, is what he said. Yeah, that is typical Putin, uh, to put it right back on the U.S. So Biden was asked about his message to Putin on Navalny. Let's listen. I made it clear to him that I believe the, the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia. So what do you think? Will that have any impact at all on Putin and his handling of Navalny? It's really difficult to say. I mean, certainly in general, Putin doesn't seem to respond well to ultimatums or threats. The U.S. has said on several occasions now um, that, you know, it will be a disaster if Alexei Navalny dies while he's in Russian custody. And he did nearly die at one point when he was on hunger strike, protesting the fact that he wasn't getting any real medical attention for a number of problems that he still has, Pam, from being poisoned with Novichok uh, last August. I mean, if you look at the broader context of what's happened to Navalny over the last years, and particularly, uh, of course, since his poisoning, it doesn't really seem that Putin is going to change his tone. And the U.S. sanctions that were leveled against certain uh, Kremlin officials as a result of uh, Navalny's poisoning were really seen by the Kremlin as being largely symbolic rather than having any real teeth. And so my guess is that the Kremlin believes on a fundamental level that even though the United States government and President Biden are always going to talk tough on issues of human rights uh, and issues of strangling the opposition, that ultimately they will will uh, concede that there is a line, essentially, that they're unwilling to cross with regards to what Putin would call his domestic political internal affairs. So as you point out, there's not much um, optimism when it comes to Navalny. But what about the families of Americans, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan? Do you think that they found any comfort in today's meeting? I mean, I can imagine that there's comfort in at least knowing that a dialogue may begin. And it sounded optimistic and positive on that side. Uh, what actually will happen as a result of this dialogue remains to be seen. It's, it's got to be understood, this whole summit, in the context of this is the beginning point. This is the start. This is the easy bit. 
in a strange sense, Pam. Now the hard bit begins, which is getting those two parties to continue the hard work of continuing this dialogue, of hashing out compromises, of agreeing upon areas of mutual restraint. And that is not easy for the thing that President Putin is asking for in return for releasing these Americans is to release a hardened arms dealer, Victor Boot, uh, that's also going to be a really tall order for the U.S. to be able to comply with that. So it's a positive start. It's good to start the dialogue. I'm sure the families find some comfort in that, but there's a lot of work to be done yet. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. One thing the two leaders focused on, the war going on right now in cyberspace. But will the Russian threat diminish? I'll talk with two of the world's top intelligence experts. Cyber attacks and cybersecurity front and center during today's meeting between President Biden and Russian President Putin. Biden told his Russian counterpart that certain areas of critical infrastructure should be off limits. I talked about the pipeline that cyber hit for $5 million, that ransomware hit in the United States. I looked at him and I said, well, how would you feel if ransomware took on the pipelines from your oil fields? He said it would matter. This is not about just our self-interest. It's about a mutual self-interest. Here to discuss former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and former CIA Chief of Russia Operations John Seifer. Great to see you both. I first want to get your reaction, uh, Director Clapper, on what we heard there from Biden. Do you think that kind of approach would work with Putin saying, how would you feel if this happened in your country? Well, I'm sure he thought about it. I think, though, for Putin, uh, it's uh, uh, if that can be backed up with some specific action that would really get his attention. So if we actually took an action uh, similar to what occurred to us with the pipeline or the meat processing, but I think overall, the uh, uh, summit, I had very low expectations about it. It was uh, a success, at least in tone and form, if, if not substance. The substance remains to be seen, you know, whether any of this will actually come to pass, particularly with respect to cyber. How do you see it, John? Well, I, I, I don't think there's going to be big changes. I do think Putin has a little bit of a weapon he can use here, because on cyber attacks, he can turn that up and turn that down in a way that the United States can, because he has his intelligence services that can do state-sponsored attacks. Then he has these you know, private groups that he claims he has no control over. They may not be state-sponsored, but they're certainly state-enabled because they're allowed to go after Western targets. So he can turn that up and turn that down. So if he does want to ratchet it down a little bit, he probably can push back a little bit there. Part of the problem is the Russian system is very corrupt, and this, those hackers are a way where or people in the security services can make money on the side. So they may continue even if President Putin doesn't want them to. So let's talk about that, because President Biden came out and outlined these 16 specific entities. He included energy and uh, water, for example, that should be out of bounds for the cyber warfare with Russia. Is it realistic to believe that the Russians, after the summit, um, will stop targeting those areas? And if they don't, what will that say? say about President Biden and having this meeting with Putin and what it was all about? Well, maybe the telegraphy here you know, between the lines is that uh, espionage, you know, passive collection is, uh, is permissible because we both do that. I think what the president's getting at is actually interfering with disrupting 
or even destroying a part of our critical infrastructure. And, and that's, that's a red line. I, I, I think that's the way he presented it. Now, if the Russians cross that red line, the, the issue is, what are we going to do about it? And uh, that, all that remains to be seen. So do you think it was strategic then that there wasn't any overt action after the Colonial Pipeline and JBS to then come to this meeting, lay out these 16 areas and well, say? Uh, there may have been an, uh, a pause, perhaps, uh, in, in, in the run-up to this meeting. The question in, for me is, what happens now? Mm -hmm. uh, if we have another uh, such uh, attack along the lines of the pipeline or meat processing, then, uh, you know, the U.S. has an issue to deal with. And if that happens, which it sounds like, John, you think they well, it very well could. Well, I don't think these agreements mean much in them of themselves. We've had tons of agreements with the Russians. There are existing cyber agreements with the Russians, and they just flaunt them. It's going to be a matter of what kind of pushback there will be. So maybe for, to try to get some other things pushed back on his domestic issues or something, Putin will try to ratchet back things here on the ransomware attacks. But he is still going to do things... Uh, his superpower is disruption, right? And so this is one way he can influence things because I don't think the United States and the West would pay a lot of attention to Russia if they weren't using these sort of tools of disruption. So this is something he can ratchet up and ratchet down. Mm -hmm. I think he will try to ratchet down for the near term, but unless we follow up our, our words with action, I think there's going to continue to be cyber attacks. It was interesting that came up during the press conference with President Biden that Putin is known as a disruptor, and Biden made clear that he tried to convey to Putin, it is in your best interest, not just our best interest in America, your best interest to stop these kinds of attacks. Do you think that was effective? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, John's more the expert than I am, but uh, we'll just have to see. I don't think basically Putin's going to change his stripes just because of this meeting. Uh, he may, if he does change behavior or cause a change in behavior, particularly with respect to cyber attacks, it will be because he decided that, at least for the time being, is in Russia's best interest. Okay. James Clapper, John Seifer, thank you both. Pleasure. Thanks, thank you. thank you. Coming up, as a new COVID variant rapidly spreads in the U.S., I'll ask a former top Biden aide on the pandemic about its impact on all of us. Stay with us. Turning to our health league now with Los Angeles and New York fully open, it is clear America is getting back to normal. But the new Delta variant, which is more transmissible and more severe than the UK variant, is worrying top health experts. It is rapidly spreading across the country, already accounting for roughly 10 percent of all U.S. COVID cases. And health officials say the variant is yet another critical reason for all Americans to get vaccinated. Think about this as a racetrack. You know, we've got the vaccines in one lane and they've been coming along pretty good, but the virus is racing too. And now there's a new horse on the track called Delta and it's coming up fast. And our best chance is to really activate this vaccination system to get us to the point where the virus is gonna lose, which is what we all want. Former Biden White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response and author of the book, Preventable, Andy Slavitt joins me now. Hi, Andy. Good to see you. How concerning is this Delta variant? Well, if you haven't been vaccinated or you live in a community where there's a lot of people that haven't been vaccinated, uh, this is a more virulent strain. This is like COVID on steroids. You can be around people for less time and still get exposed. 
So it's yet another reason why people should, if they haven't been vaccinated, should think about getting vaccinated. If you have been vaccinated, you've got very little to worry about. But if we don't reach a majority of Americans being fully vaccinated and these variants continue to spread and mutate, what does that mean for people like us who are vaccinated? Well, look, it's not a good thing for this virus to continue to spread, whether in the U.S., whether um, overseas. And we do have to vaccinate the globe more quickly. So, you know, the people out there who are thinking, do I want to, do I not want to get vaccinated? Is it a low priority or a high priority? I hope this sends the message. If you were living in a country overseas, you wouldn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated as quickly. We, But here, the Biden administration has gone ahead and procured the vaccines. We've put, put them in locations where people can reach them. And so there, you know, I would encourage people talk to your physician and have them review with you all of the questions you might have, because I think you'll make the decision that it makes a lot of sense to get vaccinated. How likely of a scenario is it for these new variants to spread and, and America would have to reverse course and have to close the country back up? What is the likelihood of something like that happening? Does that concern you at all? I think what you will see is in communities perhaps in the Southeast where vaccination rates are lower, uh, I think you'll see outbreaks particularly uh, come fall. And, you know, we'll see these in amusement parks and, and we'll see them in churches and we'll see them at weddings. We'll see them in places where people are not vaccinated. And so look, a lot more responsibility is back on to the public because we're moving from COVID as a kind of existential threat to COVID is just what I'd call a manageable challenge. And we have lots of manageable challenges in our life. We've got lots of things, and this will just add to that list. But that means you have to manage it. And so that means if you're planning on getting married in a place where there are a lot, a lot of people vaccinated, you want to make sure people are vaccinated or have a negative test or are wear a mask. Right now, only 44% of Americans are fully vaccinated. Are you confident President Biden can reach his July 4th goal of 160 million Americans vaccinated? Well, I think we're going to be around the 4th of July, uh, very close to, to Biden's target of 70% of Americans vaccinated. Maybe it'll be 68, maybe it'll be a little bit more. But at that point, we're going to keep going. Uh, the real danger is that 68 or 70% will look much higher in some parts of the country and much lower in other parts of the country. And if we really want to bring this country together, if we really want to defeat COVID, we've got to be focusing on those areas of the country with low vaccination levels. I'm going to turn to your book, Preventable. You outline how since the early days of the pandemic, you and other top health experts warned the Trump administration how catastrophic this virus could be. Why do you think lives were lost? Because the Trump administration didn't follow those warnings. Well, look, pandemics are hard. So if, if someone makes a, a, a real effort, is trying to help and makes a few mistakes, I think everybody forgives that. But there were a few things that the Trump administration did that are very hard to, to get past. One was, as we know, his um, ability to deny the reality of, of, of the virus, which he did until such time as the NBA went out, went out and, the, and the, the stock market went down, was really dangerous. So his ability to deny really hurt us. If he had just simply said, hey, we have a problem, we'd have been in much better shape. And then he squashed all dissent. Uh, there's a part of the book, where Alex Azar, the head of Health and Human Services, wanted to say the words on Fox and Friends that the virus was in good, wasn't a problem, but could deteriorate rapidly. And because of that, the White House pulled him from the show and banned him from doing media for 45 days. 
So here we are in, in the middle of a global pandemic, and our Department of Health and Human Services isn't allowed to talk to the press or the public. And there's a number of examples like that. And I go through my conversations with Jared Kushner and with Debbie Burks, et cetera, which, which I think lets you see what's going on on the inside. All right. The book is preventable. Andy Slavitt, thanks so much. Thank you, Pam. New developments in a bizarre yet violent confrontation involving bombs and balloons. That's next. In the world lead, the first big test for the new Israeli prime minister and his coalition government. For the first time since a ceasefire three weeks ago, huge explosions rocking Gaza. Israeli warplanes launched airstrikes in response to Palestinians sending balloons rigged with explosives into southern Israel. CNN's Hadass Gold with the latest from Jerusalem. A fragile ceasefire between Israel and Hamas-led militants in the Gaza Strip rocked Tuesday. Militants in Gaza launching incendiary balloons over the border earlier in the day. Colorful party decorations often attached to explosive devices or just lit on fire sparking at least 20 blazes in southern Israel, according to Israeli officials. The Israeli Air Force responding overnight, striking what it says were Hamas military complexes and meeting places. Palestinian media reporting material damages, but no casualties. Hamas calling the Israeli airstrikes a failed attempt to stop our people's solidarity and resistance in the holy city. Militants say they sent the balloons in reaction to a right-wing Israeli flag march in Jerusalem on Tuesday, where demonstrators danced and sang in front of one of the main entrances for Muslim worshippers to the old city, chanting, Jerusalem is ours, some even saying, death to Arabs. The annual march, which celebrates Israel gaining control of the Western Wall and East Jerusalem in the 1967 war, rescheduled to Tuesday after it was canceled last month when Hamas launched rockets towards Jerusalem, helping to trigger the 11-day bloody conflict. The airstrikes overnight, a harsher response to these incendiary balloons than in the past were tolerated. A test and a message from the newly installed government, led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who has previously advocated for greater military action in response to these incendiary balloons. More balloons launched Wednesday, sparking at least four more fires, according to Israeli officials, showing the possibility that an imminent and serious escalation cannot be ruled out. Pamela, just three days into Naftali Bennett's term as Israeli prime minister, this is a crucial early test. And as these incendiary balloons continue to be sent into Israel today, the big question will be how and whether the Israeli military will respond tonight. Pamela. All right. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem, thanks so much. And up next, bipartisanship with a glass of Chardonnay. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.